Good morning, everyone. As Nick explained, we're, we're taking a pause from our study in Ephesians uh, for the next few weeks to, to kind of prepare, pe- <coughs> prepare ourselves for an extended period of daily prayer. Um, and, and we're swinging for the fences on this. We're asking a lot of you. I, I would imagine if I were to take a survey of how many of you have met with another Christian for prayer daily for a month or more, I, I would imagine we're probably about half that have done that at some point in time. I, asked if, I think if I asked if we were in the habit of doing that um, currently, that that number would be even lower. Um, and I've, I've had the opportunity to do this in a couple of different ways over the last few years, um, and um, they have been so significant in ways that I didn't see. Um, the first time we did this, we prayed together every morning in January, a couple of years ago, met right here, about 10 of us for prayer every morning, and I learned two really great things about why it worked, okay? This is, this is what makes a season like this work. One was that it was daily, so it became a habit, it became a part of my routine and therefore had kind of the daily momentum to actually change me and actually change my prayer life. And I watched as the people I was praying with changed in their prayer life as we prayed together every day. But the other thing that helped was because I did it with other people, and to be fair, because I was the only one with keys to the building, I actually did it. I got up every day and met with the same people 30 days in a row. I don't know about you, but we've all tried to kickstart our personal devotional lives many times, and building new habits is hard. Building habits with others is easier. And so, again, I know it's, we're asking a lot, and Nick hit it on the head. Be as creative as you can. Choose the time. Choose the place. Choose the technology that makes this work. Choose the people. If you want to just do it with your spouse or your roommate, or even if you want to grab a coworker who's not part of our church and do it on your lunch break, but I really want to encourage you um, to do so. However, these are just my words. All of the motivation I've just given you is, is just me urging, and I have maybe some relational credibility. I have maybe even some uh, official credibility as your pastor, but I want to take the next two weeks and I want to talk about what God does in the wilderness, okay? And I want you to keep kind of two things in mind as we talk about this. One is, I think we are living certifiably in wilderness times, okay? And I'll, I'll try and show you what I mean today. In other words, I would suggest to you that part of our struggle in our walk with God right now and in our life in this world is that we find ourselves in the deserted places, okay? And so learning to not just seek God, but to see God in those places and understand that he hasn't left the building, that he hasn't vacated his plans or promises, but is actually working in times like these is important. But second, because the church has been so convinced that God is at work in the wilderness, there have been many periods and many seasons where the church has intentionally gone to the wilderness to find him, to refresh, to restart Okay, and so this morning, I want to talk about the Desert Father. Okay, the Desert Fathers are a perfect example of what I'm talking about. Men and women who literally packed up their lives, moved into deserted places, and started communities to seek God in a greater way. But I want to talk about the original Desert Father. I want to talk about the first commune. I want to talk about the monastery we know as Israel during the 40, day, or 40 years that they spent in the wilderness this morning. And to do so, we're going to open up to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Okay. Deuteronomy is just about five books into your Old Testament. If you didn't bring a Bible this morning, there should be one nearby you that you are encouraged to open up along with us. And let me just give you the context before we read the passage and go along our way. Um, Moses here is giving his final address to the people of Israel. This is at not only the end of Moses' lifetime, but also the end of Israel's period in the wilderness. They're just on the cusp of entering into the promised land. But you also need to understand that they're doing this after 40 years of delay. Okay? Israel had been miraculously 
and powerfully delivered from Egypt and brought out into the wilderness and met with God at Mount Sinai. He laid out his vision and his plan and his covenant for them, the laws and what it would look like for them to be his people. And then he led them to the land that he had promised to their, uh, to their forefather, Abraham. And they got to the border and there were other people living there. And God said, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to bring judgment on these people and I'm going to use you to do it. And they sent in spies, and ten of the spies came back and said, you know what, this place is great, but the occupants are going to destroy us. This is too dangerous, it's not worth it. And two men, Joshua and Caleb, gave a different report, and they said, they're right, they're big, but God is bigger. And he's promised to do this, we should go in. But Israel as a nation decided not to enter in, and so in judgment, God says, you don't want to enter in, fine. We're going to wander around for 40 days in the wilderness or 40 years in the wilderness and you can die there. You can live out your lives without entering into my plans, but your children they will enter in. And so this 40-year period is like a pause button on God's plans. This 40-year period is like a period of judgment and discipline. And it's also a period of tremendous difficulty. I I I know some of you like camping. I I will give you the benefit of the doubt that there's enjoyment in that, okay? But would you go camping for 40 years? Right? This is what Israel did. For 40 years, they lived in the wilderness. No home, no property, constantly on the move. And yeah, God is present and working and miraculously providing literal bread from heaven to keep them going. As we'll see in this passage today, he's even making sure that their shoes don't wear out and their clothing doesn't wear out because they can't go to the Macy's, right? There's, there's no place for them to get new clothes and God says, I'm going to take care of that, which is such a weird thing because again, this is a 40-year period of judgment, but God graciously provides for their journey, but it's completely unproductive, okay? And so... What, what Moses is doing is he's looking back on these 40 years and he's speaking to an audience who's never known anything but the wilderness. These are the ones who were, who were children in Egypt and became adults in the wilderness and have lived out their life like this and now they're finally going to get to, get to enter into the promised land and what he wants to convey to them is this was not wasted time. This seemed like an empty and a barren and a difficult season. However, this is what God was doing, okay? And so read with me here, beginning in verse 2. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commandments. And he humbled you and let, your, let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear on you and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and fearing him. Let's pray. God, I'm reminded of an occasion where Elijah's servant sees the armies outside and is freaking out. And Elijah's not bothered. And he prays, God, would you open the eyes of my servant? And he looks again and he sees what he could not see. He sees that the men that have come to stand against them are completely outranked and outnumbered by an angelic host that's there to protect Elijah and his servant. In the same way, Lord, so often in our lives, we are caught up in what we see, but we need to see what we cannot. And so I pray, Lord, in this difficult season of life, that you would open our eyes to see your hand and your goodness this morning. And I pray as well for this church that I love and that you've called me to lead. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to follow you into the wilderness this season because we need you. And so I pray even this morning that you would show us anew how much we need you. In Jesus' name, amen.
What is a wilderness? Well, first and most importantly, a wilderness is a place of difficulty, of emptiness, of barrenness. The, if you had to contrast a wilderness, you would do it in two ways. One, it would be uh, an isolated place instead of a populated place. And two, it would be a barren place instead of a fruitful place. So wilderness is not a city, and it's not a garden. Okay. And so the wilderness is a place where when you're thirsty, it's hard to quench your thirst. Where when you're hungry, it's difficult to be satisfied. Difficult, actually, I think is a key word. When we add to that what's going on in this particular wilderness, it's also a place of temporary instead of permanent. It's tents instead of houses. It's seasons instead of years. It's instability instead of stability. And then finally, when we look at this, it's also a place of not just unproductive soil, but unproductive lives. Right? It's as if in this occasion for 40 years, Israel's future is on hold. They're just biding time. It doesn't seem like progress is being made. It doesn't matter how hard you put your foot on the pedal. The tires are just spinning and spinning and spinning, and you're going nowhere. When I look at the last two years of our life, I find so many touch points with that concept. We have been living in a time that doesn't seem to end or move forward. We've been living in a time where things are more difficult, at least for me at the age of 39, than, than a, another time that I can remember. We're living in a time where we're fully acquainted with our discontentment, a time of isolation and struggle and all these things, okay? And so there's a lot, I think, to overlap here but it's amazing. And, and remember the context here. As Moses describes what God is doing, remember that this all begins with a disobedient people who do not believe that God is trustworthy. And so they cross their arms and just say, no, we're not going to go into the land. And he says, fine. And so these 40 years have been truly an act of judgment. And the language in Numbers 14 that talks about this is strong. He says, you will lay like carcasses in the wilderness which, by the way, is an appropriate setting for a carcass, right? Imagine the vulture. Do you see him, you know, down at Westlake Center? No, right? There, there's, there's a corresponding, there's a, a poetic justice to what God's doing, but it is an act of judgment. And again, this is an aside, one that I don't want to take time to uh, unpack, but if you want to look at the church right now, we are living in a period where where I believe that God is bringing judgment upon his church. And I feel like I'm watching people die to the left and to the right of me in all sorts of ways, okay? But when Moses reflects on this, I want you to notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't, he doesn't say, realize that God for 40 years said, fine, I'll try again, I'm going to take a vacation, he doesn't say here, God has been absent, but he's ready to be involved. Will you sign on the dotted line? No, he says God has been at work. He is doing something. These years mattered. Okay. And again, the reason why I want to hit this is because I know that some of us are in this season. And even if you aren't, I want to point out to you that the wilderness is a place that we should go. Not that we should live in. God has callings for us in the populated places. God has purpose in the good and the fruitful and the abundant times. God is just as much a God of the times of ease as he is the times of difficulty. Okay. And that's what he's got for Israel. The rest of chapter 8 says, I'm going to do great things for you. In fact, notice what it says here in verse 8. Uh, sorry, verse 7. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. A land of brooks of water, fountains, springs, flowing out in valleys and hills. A land of wheat and barley, vines, fig trees, pomegranates. A land of olive trees and honey. A land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing. A land whose stones are iron, and out of whose hills you can dig copper, and you shall eat and be full. And you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. That's where they're headed. And God's all about that. And he's going to be just as much at work there. 
But there's a purpose for the wilderness seasons. Jesus knows this because on the day of his baptism, what happens? God reveals to John with a voice from heaven, this is my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. His baptism, his ministry begins, and it says in the next verse in Luke chapter 4, and the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. And he was there for 40 days, taking this period of time in Israel's history and acting it out anew. And it's there that he's tempted by the devil. And you know what? Two of the three times Jesus responds to the temptations by saying, it is written, he quotes from Deuteronomy, and one of them from right here. As he's in the wilderness, what's he thinking about? He's thinking about Israel's journey in the wilderness. Okay? So, let's look at what it was that God was doing. Go back again to verse 2. And you should remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you. What was God doing for 40 years? He was bringing them to a place of humility. Okay. And pride here is, is a danger, not just because it offends God, but because it cultivates a sense of false accomplishment. The danger of pride is that it is untrue. The danger of pride is that it is not realistic. And so pride separates us from God because it it makes us feel like we don't need him. Pride separates us from God because we take the credit for the things that God is doing. We stand like the king of Babylon and we look out over an entire empire and we say, I did this. Pride is very, very difficult in the wilderness. The wilderness is a place where you say, I can't do anything. The wilderness is a place of impossible problems, and thankfully, because God is present, impossible solutions. And that's, that's what Israel experiences. He wants to humble them, but that's not the same thing as humiliate them. The idea here isn't, I wanted to put you in your place and remind you how small you are, you know, and then he just puts his foot on their neck and says, see, it's not as if God is holding Israel in a chokehold until they say uncle. That's not what's going on here. The, the goal, the purpose is not shame. The purpose is to remind them that they're merely human. And see, We hate the wilderness because it's hard. But the truth is, it's hard because we're just people. And so here, he's done this. He's taken these 40 years to humble them. Proverbs tells us that the haughty heart comes before the fall. That we are most prone to mess things up when we're walking tall and with complete confidence. And the Bible has no issue with self-esteem. But pride, again, is more than that. Pride no longer gives credit where credit is due and takes credit where it is not. Pride sets itself up as being the, the center and the focal point and the limelight. Look at me. Appreciate me. Serve me. Believe in me. And the truth is, you don't need any more of an audience than your bathroom mirror. That's enough. Pride can work just with your own sense of self. Okay? But God does this because, as he points out multiple times, he resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. A few weeks ago, Nick was teaching and he was talking about his young kids and when he was, you know, when they're off the beaten path, how they hold his hand to stand up. How when you have someone next to you and you're holding on to them for strength, you're stable. I think that's a good picture. It's a picture of humility, of knowing I'm just a little kid, but my dad is strong. Okay. That's the purpose, the goal of the relationship. 
God doesn't come to Israel and go, you know what, you guys are in bad circumstances, people are totally taking advantage of and oppressing of you, and so I'm going to set you free so that you can be free. No. He says, I'm going to set you free so you can be mine. So you can trust in me, so you can lean on me, so you can be dependent upon me. In fact, that continues as we continue on. Look at, he says, uh, verse 2, you should remember the whole way that the Lord God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, and then noticing this, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Here's another thing that's a lot harder in the wilderness. Obedience. When obeying God comes with fringe benefits, when his will aligns with our will, it's easy. But there's a danger of formalism, of saying that we're doing this for God when we're actually doing it for ourselves. Elizabeth Elliot used to tell a false parable about Jesus and his disciples, where Jesus is traveling with them, and he turns to them all early in the morning. They're at a river, and he says, I want you to each pick up a stone and carry it. And so they all pick a rock, and Peter finds just the smallest pebble on the beach. And he's like, oh, I've got this beat. And so he walks, and they get to a place, and they settle in for lunch, and he turns all their stones into bread. And so Peter has this little tiny, little tiny morsel, and he's reflecting on this, and Jesus says, all right, I want you all to pick up stones again. And this time, Peter, smartly, he thinks, picks up a large stone a big one, one he can barely carry, and he carries it all day in anticipation of dinner, and they get to dinner time, and Jesus says, all right, throw the stones away. And Peter goes, Lord, I don't understand what's going on here, and he says, Peter, that stone you carried this morning, the little small one, that you carried for me, but the second one you carried for yourself. That's the type of testing that we're talking about here. It's not, let's see if Israel is good enough. It's, a, it's, let's see what's really in their hearts. Let's see if the purpose of their obedience is for this case. And C.S. Lewis tells us that this is one of God's greatest intentions in pain. Pain gives us a way to show to ourselves that God is more important. For Job... In all of the abundance of his life, with 11 children at the table, and all of his, you know, uh, all of his industry, and all of his wealth, and all of his health, to say the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. It means something, but it's not as clearly true as when in dust and ashes and all is gone, he says the same thing. Right? That was what Satan accused Job of. Job only worships you because you've been so nice to him because you've given him everything, he's not interested in you, he's interested in your stuff. And so here, the wilderness becomes a place to prove. And again, not for God. God's not going, I wonder if they really love me. He knows. But the wilderness is a place where he shows us what's really in our hearts. And again, Jesus knows this firsthand. Listen to what the author of Hebrews tells us about Jesus. Here in Hebrews chapter 5, it says in verse 7, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. But although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. This passage is so hard to wrap our heads around. It's so deep. But clearly here, the occasion that the author of Hebrews has in mind is the Garden of Gethsemane. Right? Because it says here, he offered up prayers and supplication with great tears that he might be saved from his death. Okay. And you remember what happens in the garden? Jesus falls down on his knees and he prays, knowing about what's about to happen, knowing about the betrayal 
and the trial and the beatings and the crucifixion and then the full ex, you know, experience of God's wrath. He knows all of that is coming. And he says, God, if there is any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Okay. What is the recognition there? Jesus says, as much as I don't want to do this, as much as it's going to cost me, I want your will instead of mine. And that's where we get to the depths of the depths of the New Testament. It says here in verse 8, although he was a son. Let me put that in different language. Although he was God. Although he was God come in flesh. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. He learned obedience. The God of the universe became obedient. And he learned it because it came with the cost and consequence of a fallen world. Not his fault, ours, but he entered into it and he learned obedience by the thing he suffered. But this is what I want you to notice. Where did his obedience become capital O obedience? In the garden. In the wilderness. That's, that's where the, the evidence of Jesus' obedience to God is the strongest. He says earlier in his life, I do all the things that please the Father. Now we know it's true. Okay. This is what it means to be in the wilderness, and this is one of the reasons why we should rejoice in the wilderness, because it exposes what we really think, what we really feel, what's most important. And to be honest, sometimes that in and of itself is humbling because we go, man, I was in this for the wrong reasons. I signed up not realizing the full cost. We may find ourselves to parody somebody who speaks to Jesus in the gospel saying, Lord, I desire, but help my, help my lack of desire. We may come close to Job, but we say, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, and I, I want to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. But it's also worth remembering that sometimes we're not sure for ourselves if we're really as faithful or as committed or if our hearts are really as known as we do. And then the proving ground comes and we go, oh, this really is my one true desire. This really is my center. In other words, I'm saying that God uses these seasons both to confront and to comfort. And they both matter. And so God does this in the wilderness. He exposes us, like John tells us in 1 John, he is light and in him is no darkness and then there's a call to walk in the light. But the goal is fellowship. Because if our heart's not in it, we're not in a relationship with God. And we're so capable of fooling ourselves. What does Isaiah say? He says, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. God's never been impressed with our show-and-tell spirituality. We are, all the time. We resonate with the characters in the New Testament who sometimes we hear their thoughts and they go, boy, I'm really a good person. Right? We have those thoughts. But if it doesn't include our heart, I don't want to even say it doesn't count, but it doesn't. What if the greatest danger in your life are not the places where you are aware of lack, but where you are content? What if the most dangerous places in your life are the places of satisfaction where you are settling for less than what God has for you? The wilderness is a place that exposes those things, not so that God can leave you in the wilderness, but so that he can meet you there, take you deeper. Go back with me to Deuteronomy 8. Let's look at the next part. So the wilderness is a place of humility instead of pride. It's a place of authenticity instead of formalism. And then notice here, 
Look at verse 3. And he humbled you, he repeats it, he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. That is a complex sentence. There's a lot going on here, okay? And, and we need to slow down and we need to follow it for a second, okay? So let's look at step one. First, God lets you hunger, okay? Again, that's, that's an easy thing to do in the wilderness. He brought you into a place where you went, I don't have what I need to eat. And maybe he even brought you to a point where you said, I really need to eat, okay? And then it says he humbled you and let you hunger, and then he fed you with manna, which you did not know. Okay? What, what this means here is the way that God provided for Israel in the wilderness was new. In fact, it's, it's so new, it's never happened again. Okay? It was just a completely unique, unexpected, utter thing. The Hebrew word for manna just means, I don't know what this is. Okay? And he reminds, he says, not only did you not know it, but your fathers didn't know it. There's no precedent for this. This is not, all right, this is how God did this last time, so I know how this works, I just got to push the button again, right? There's, there's no Pavlovian experience here where we just say the right prayer and it calls down the same blessing. That's not what this is. This is unexpected and miraculous and even mystifying provision. And the thing is, I would suggest to you that when times are good, when you're in the populated and the fruitful places, when you're busy with your life, you wouldn't know the difference between manna and hail. You wouldn't be looking. You don't see the provisions of God when they're miraculous, when you don't feel the need for them. Hunger prepares the palate of God's provision. And so he does this, but notice here it says, and Again, you've got to follow the language here because he makes a play on words. He says, the man I fed you with, you didn't know and your fathers didn't know. But then notice how it continues. He says, that he might make you know. He gave you something you didn't know because he wanted you to know something else. Do you see the logic there? And what is it? He wanted to make you know that man will not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's not the conclusion you would expect. He made you hungry, and he met that hungry with physical food so that you would know that physical food is not enough. And again, I would suggest to you, in in the paradise, in the populated places, when times are good, it doesn't work that way. We don't eat and then go, I'm still not satisfied. But that's what he's suggesting here. He's saying in the wilderness, God meets our hungers to show us our deeper hungers. And here's the thing. We live in a time where we can cope with difficulty through DoorDash or Uber Eats, right? In fact, we live in a time where we, we self-medicate with food and we distract from pain with entertainment. And sometimes we even seek the company of others to avoid pain in our life, to distract. But in the wilderness, all those things fall away. And so here's what they discover as God provides what's, what's certifiably basic. And I'm not saying not tasty. It sounds like it's tasty, but it's the same meal, morning, noon, and night, every day for 40 years. And the one time they get a meat option, everybody goes wild and gets sick. Okay. Manna, every day, it's basic. But in that, he says, I did that so that you would know that food is not enough. We're totally capable of mistaking the feast for the kingdom. That's why Paul says, the kingdom of God is not an eat and drink. Why? Because we're convinced that it is. And so he brings us back to basics, and he brings us to nourishment, and it leaves the places that need to be touched untouched in a way that even we know it. This is the purpose of fasting. Fasting is not to show God that you're so holy that you can go without eating. 
And fasting is not because your body isn't good. God made part of you, and so it needs to be neglected because that's not where the spiritual life is. Fasting is training your hunger for the deeper things that lie under your hunger. Fasting helps you to redirect and go, this hunger I have for here, for now, for today, it pales in comparison to my need for God. And so I'm going to leverage this hunger to remember how deep that need is, and I'm going to seek to meet that need instead. That's what fasting's about. That's what the wilderness is about. And so what they learned here is that they need to hear God's voice. They need to know his will. And we see this again in Jesus. Jesus, being just as human as you and I, although he was not merely human, being God in the flesh, he walks into the city of Samaria and he's so hungry, he has to sit down and send the disciples to get something to eat. And while he's sitting there, he has a conversation with a Samaritan woman. He asks her for a drink from the well. They have this conversation. He leads her to understand that he is the savior that, they're, that they've been waiting for. And the disciples come back, and they've got food in hand. And Jesus doesn't seem interested. And they say, Rabbi, eat. And he says, I have food to eat that you did not know of. For my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus was satisfied at that deeper level to the degree that lunch wasn't high on the to-do list anymore. He still needed to eat. He was still going to. But he already found what he was looking for. That's what this means when it says, man will not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It says, God, I'm desperate to know your will. God, I'm desperate to do your will. God, I'm desperate to hear your still, small voice. And again, the church has found traditionally that that's easier in places where the other voices are quiet. In the lonely places, in the places of solitude, where there's not just constant noise and activity. And so it says here, he humbled you, he fed you with manna, so that you would know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Then he adds in verse 4, your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. What is that? That's faithfulness. He says, I want you to stop and reflect, and I don't, I don't know really what this means. It's got some poetic language in it. Your feet did not swell. I don't think that means that swelling was completely impossible for 40 years. It's poetic language, right? The, the point is, I protected, I cared for, I tended for you. You didn't experience, you know, you walked out of this not looking like you lived in the wilderness for 40 years. That, that is a proper understanding of this. Um, but it's surprising for another reason, as I mentioned, because this isn't necessarily what Israel deserved. And notice he doesn't distinguish here and say, you innocent children who didn't blow it, on the borderline. I protected you, but your parents look at their shoes. No, this was a package deal. He cared for those who were waiting to die just as much as those who were waiting to continue into the land. But what it is primarily is a picture of faithfulness. God says, I was there. I protected. I preserved. And again, wilderness periods are periods where we discover that God keeps his promises. Paul says that the first time he was imprisoned, everyone forsook him. Nobody stood by him, but the Lord stood by him. How does he know that God is faithful? Because he's faithful in the times of darkness, in the times of difficulty. Okay. And again, this shouldn't make us masochistic in our pursuit of hardship. You shouldn't throw yourself in front of a bus to learn that God is good. But you do need to learn to recognize that God, who hands out difficulties just as often as he hands out blessings, is still at work and wants to show you things, remind you of things, and most importantly, prove his faithfulness. Paul tells us in the New Testament that all of the promises of God are yes 
and amen. The Psalms tells us, David says, I've never seen the righteous go hungry. Now, obviously, he means that in a qualified way because Christians die of starvation. But his point is that God, in his good sovereignty, is doing more than that. And if he decides that now is the time to end the life, could he not be doing something just as good? Could he not be saying, all right, now is the time? The significance of this statement is your clothes did not wear on you and your foot did not swell is, will you just reflect for a moment on the fact that you're still here? And I've counseled enough people in times of hardship to know that this doesn't always ring encouraging. But still standing is a major victory. It's a major victory and it's one that you are incapable of on your own. God brings us through times of suffering and he has promised to do just that. And so it is a place to learn God's faithfulness and I would encourage you, if you haven't done so already, set back your mental calendar to the December of 2019 and walk through the last few years and look for God's faithfulness because it's easy to miss. Even when it's on your feet, Then finally notice here in verse 5, Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord God disciplines you. The wilderness is a place of discipline. Okay. Now, we don't always think about the word discipline because we're not very fond of it. And the New Testament says the same thing. It says basically, my paraphrase, discipline is no fun at all. Okay. None of our children, for those of you who are parents, think, oh, right, I hope, hope that my parents are going to discipline me. It's never fun to enjoy, and therefore it's something that we are reluctant about, but have you ever noticed that the word is the other side of the coin of the word discipleship? Positive instruction is discipleship. Discipline is just the underside of it. One pushes you towards the right thing, the other pulls you back from the wrong. But every time the Bible talks about discipline, it does it in the context of a father and a child. And does so here. And if we were to go to the book of Hebrews, it would say the same thing. In fact, Hebrews says, rejoice in God's discipline because it is evidence that you are his children. Those who aren't his children get away with things because they're not interested in what God is offering. But here's what this says. It says, again, that we are capable with cultivating a spirit of immaturity. We're capable with going, this is far enough. This is about as much as I'd like to grow, thank you very much. I'd like to be 15 forever. Okay. It, says, it says, as a child, I was so dependent upon others that the world revolved around me, so as an adult, I'm going to just keep playing out the same way. What discipline does is it brings maturity. What discipline does is it makes us good. Okay. And so the idea here of as a father is this is for your best interest. And I know that we've all experienced parental punishment that has nothing to do with our best interest. Because our parents are human. And so I've yelled at my boys in public places because I was embarrassed for me. Not because I wanted to teach them how to love their neighbors. Okay. We're fully capable of that. God is not. When God disciplines, it is for your sake. He is trying to cultivate. He is trying to grow. He is trying to mature. He is trying to improve. And that requires discipline. It means two things. Discipline means, one, God doesn't let you get away with stuff. It is very hard to perpetually carry on in sin as a Christian. You can look to the left and right and go, I know all of their secrets. How come I'm the one who got found out? Because God loves you. Okay. It means we get caught. Discipline always involves getting caught, doesn't it? It is not discipline if you go to God or go to your father in confession and say, these are the bad things I've been doing. Help me to do better. That's a much better thing than discipline. Discipline is when you get caught. But the second thing is discipline is consequences. 
Discipline is when God lets consequences come to your life, and he doesn't always do this. But when he does, it's because he wants you to have something better than your sin. And so he allows the consequences to come out of love to teach you the deceitfulness of sin. He disciplines because he loves us, because he is our father and we are his child and he is committed to our growth and our goodness. And this is what God did in the wilderness. It was a training program, a regiment for what was to come. Now, here's the ironic thing about the book of Deuteronomy here. Here, we would expect that the wilderness is the dangerous place. And so we see the promised land as the finish line, as the after party, as the celebration. Look, we survived the wilderness. God tested us there. No, 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 no. The wilderness is the preparation for the dangers of the promised land. Notice what he says here. Verse 11. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and rules and his statutes when I command you today. Listen, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up, pride, and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery, who led you through this great terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and its thirsty ground where there was no water. Do you see what he says here? He says there's a massive danger in the good times. And the wilderness prepares us to spot the dangers and not fall prey to them. Okay. Now there's a way that we need to definitely not understand this today, which is, if you can prove it in the wilderness, to, uh, wilderness, God will give you the blessings. That just means you need more wilderness. It really does. But the thing is, there is a danger in abundance. There's a danger in the blessing. We've seen it all this morning. There's a danger in shifting into neutral and just coasting because life is good. There's a danger in taking the credit because life is good and look, I made it this way. There's a danger in becoming undisciplined, not in the sense of this passage, but no longer watching out for or caring about and indulging a bit more and settling for less. All of those dangers come from when times are good. And when we hit a wilderness patch like we just did, we hit it like a speed bump at 95 because things are not right and God isn't punishing. He's pulling back the curtain. And so wilderness periods are something that we've seen, again, the church pursue, make seasons of. Times of isolation, solitude, simplification, sacrifice, sackcloth and ashes, the whole deal. We have chosen to go into the wilderness to protect us from the good times. And traditionally, the church, not just the Catholic church, but many traditions that both predate Catholicism and ran parallel to it all the way to today, have used the season of Lent for that reason. In the beginning, in the second century, this is what Lent was for. It was for new converts to prepare themselves for their baptism. And it was for flagrant sinners under church discipline who wanted to prepare themselves to return to the church. Okay. It's a season of exposing yourself, of seeking the Lord, again, of simplification. It's a season of going, this Easter, I want it to be like Easter for the first time all over again. This time, I want to fully surrender myself again to all the good things that God has. This is a season when we want to wean ourselves off the false comforts of the world and remember the God of all comfort, as Paul calls him in 2 Corinthians. That's why these things are valuable. And so I don't know where you are. You might this morning be, man, the wilderness is where I live. I've been doing that tent life for years now. That may be where you are. Use this coming period, March through Easter, use it to retrain your eyes to see what God is doing and to seek him where he may be found in the wilderness. Or maybe you say, you know what, at the moment, I'm, I'm doing fine. 
use this as an opportunity to intentionally go into the wilderness. To know that God has good things that he does, and some of them he only does there. And don't do it alone. But as a church, let's go to our desert father and trust that he has good things for us if we seek him. Let me read one last passage to you and then I'll pray. Going back to that idea I said earlier of of food and deeper hunger. I want you to hear this offer and I want you to hear it for you right where you are. Come everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. Let's pray. God, our, our culture, our times, our very human nature has trained us to have an allergy for the wilderness, to flee from these places. But Lord, we want to hear your voice crying in the wilderness this morning. We want to hear your invitation. We want to see the places where just as your spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness, maybe you're goading us there as well. And for those of us who are in a time of extended difficulty, barrenness, hardship, isolation, struggle, hand-to-mouth, day-to-day, God, we, we just need eyes to see. And so would you open our eyes and show us what you are doing present tense. May we no longer settle for the things you did that one day, a long time ago. And may we no longer be banking on what you will do someday if we just hold out a little longer but let us recognize that the mercies and the steadfast Lord, uh, love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end, and they are new every morning. And I pray for my brothers and sisters in this church as we move forward this season. I pray that you would give them the motivation and the creativity to cultivate a season with the help of their brothers and sisters to seek you together as a church, knowing that if we seek you with all our heart, we will find you. We're so grateful for that, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you are the God who meets us. Thank you, Lord, that you are the God who sent Jesus to live the life we could not live, to die the death that we deserve, to raise from the dead as king and conqueror of Satan, sin, hell, and death, and to offer us a true and satisfying relationship with you, which is what we were built for, what we were designed for, what we were created for. We thank you for that gift. I pray, Lord, that this would be a year where that gift becomes newer and deeper than it's ever been. And we ask that you would help us with that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship the Lord together.